Welcome to our Boston Heart Podcast. Today we have Dr. Jared Isavarin with us today, who is practicing in California. And please tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into medicine and what are you passionate about? Well, thank you for asking. I think this is a very almost complicated question because it's talking about my lifetime for what I've enjoyed doing. But um, my background is probably started back with uh, my current interest um, going back to my undergraduate years at St. Mary's College in Moraga, California, where I was a biology chemistry split major and where I minored in philosophy. I advanced those interests at uh, Cal State University Hayward, where I received certification in biotechnology as part of my post-baccalaureate training, and also at that time I performed research in microbiology, working on the efficacy of cephalosporins and fluoroquinolones back in the late 80s uh, when we were testing antibiotics, which were being considered in veterinary medicine. From the Bay Area, I went down to South Florida and attended Nova Southeastern University College of Osteopathic Medicine, where I had strong interests in gaining skills performing non-surgical orthopedics. My residency training brought me back to UC Davis Medical Center up in Sacramento, and where I completed a family practice residency training program at Mercy Family Health Center, uh, which was part of the UC Davis network. Upon completion of that, I finally came back home to the Monterey Peninsula, where I was raised and provided health care as my father um, had for over 27 years in dentistry while I was growing up. Um, since 1999, I've been practicing as a family physician using my osteopathic skills and holistic training for treatment of everything from sports injuries and also taking that holistic approach and applying it to endocrinology, cardiovascular medicine, and everything else that is entailed under family medicine. Through um, companies such as Boston Heart Diagnostics, it's been pretty amazing for me to uh, be able to uh, kind of tie together my interests in uh, biology at the chemistry, biology and chemistry at that at that level, and being able to then make it real in ability to um, make that something where patients can begin to understand what their chemistry is in terms of understanding their labs and being able to correlate it to everyday health. Wow, you went from one coast to the other. That's so awesome. And then back to California. So what is your patient population like now? And what percentage would you say um, of your patients that have like, I know you had a special interest in metabolic things at one time, and you probably gravitate towards those patients. What percentage of your patients have some type of insulin issues, glucose issues, insulin resistance, that type of clientele? Uh, great question. I think the broadness of family medicine is such that my patients range from adolescents to over 90 years of age. And the distribution is interesting because my goal has been to get those patients in the first five decades of their life to understand the risk factors so that they can make the changes necessary to enjoy the next five decades of their lives. So, so it's identifying early on that concept and making it real to them to see what they can do to influence their health. The risk of uh, the task, excuse me, of risk stratifying um, near established patients into whether their lifestyle will be used um, 
to lead more towards health or to potential downfalls begins with the first thing I have patients do when they come into my office, and that is by performing a body composition analysis using a Tanita scale. And what that does is it breaks down their total weight into bone mass, muscle mass, fat mass, total body water, total body water percentage. And it's interesting when patients begin to see themselves this way because that's when uh, they can be able to begin to understand, well, wait a minute, I'm age 45, but my metabolic age is 60, or I'm 45, but my metabolic age is 30. So there's a there's a 30-year delta between whether patients are accelerating towards decreased metabolic activity, which will lead to cardiovascular disease, or the opposite, it'll delay that process. And for those patients in which their metabolic age is, let's say, 15 years younger than their chronological age, I say, here's your brag tag. You know, you can take this back home and show, you know, what you're doing and being a good steward of your body. For those that are beyond their chronological age, it's been the beginning point of a the beginning point of a of a of a dialogue which will take them into understanding, you know, their their muscle mass, their fat mass, what is an ideal body fat percentage uh, that they can work to getting towards to being able to achieve their desired goals. So, so with that foundation of beginning to look at themselves a little bit differently, it's rather fascinating. So, um, I think the context of insulin resistance, type two diabetes, really at that point um, begins to be more meaningful if they see themselves older than their chronological age, and then we can begin a discussion about that. So what percentage? Well, it's really kind of hard to say because of the smattering I have of patients. If you look at it as a Gaussian curve, I mean, it's it's all over. And once again, I, I'm, I'm lucky because people are pretty self-conscious uh, where I'm practicing to to really want to maximize their health. And I think ideally, patients really don't want to go on medications if they can help it. I think the concept of there's a pill for every ill is something that people don't really feel great about. And if they can do something to gain some control over their, their health and their life, they're going to want to gravitate towards those modifiable factors first. So that's what I, that's what I focus on. So that's how Boston Heart fits in to your practice. I'm getting it now. So in your patients with exactly. the insulin and glucose issues, what what are you noticing in their lipid markers when you do labs on them? Well, this is the brilliance of what um, what was created through Boston Heart, and that is graphically when you can see a page and you're looking at four categories. You're looking at genetics. You're looking at dyslipidemia or metabolic, uh, lipid metabolism, cardiovascular inflammatory markers and diabetic metabolism, excuse me. If you're looking at these four basic pillars, the question I had to ask myself at some point was, what's cause and what's effect? Does high cholesterol, does elevated LDL, elevated triglycerides, elevated total cholesterol cause hyperglycemia and diabetes? Does elevated inflammatory markers, whether they're high sensitivity C-reactive protein, or myeloperoxidase, unstable plaque protein, fibrinogen, does that cause elevated glucose and insulin 
resistance? Not necessarily, but I have found that people begin to understand not only just what their blood glucose is, but insulin resistance and pancreatic stress, which is measured through, for example, the homeostatic metabolic assessment for insulin resistance, also known as HOMA-IR, uh, which is a calculation. If they begin to understand that they have some insulin resistance or they see pancreatic stress in the form of elevated C-peptide proteins and insulin levels, what are the effects of that on the downwind categories of dyslipidemia and uh, elevated uh, cardiovascular enzymes, then that's where, where not enzymes, excuse me, proteins, that's where, where things can begin to um, make sense for a patient to say, okay, here's cause and here's effect. So the first thing that I look at when I look at a lipid profile is that I look at the triglycerides. Typically, a lab standard is to have a triglyceride level of less than 150. That's never been my goal. My goal has been less than 100. I've all shot lower because if I see lower, then I see actually a great way to maximize HDL production and uh, minimize LDL activity, especially with how Boston Heart Diagnostics has broken down labs and being able to look at not only just the calculated values, but the real damage which is done with the particles understanding APOB, LDLP, small density LDLC, and seeing how these particles really cause the damage. Very often I will see a moderately elevated LDLC value, but then I'll see high risk elevated categories for these small LDL particles. That really tells me a better story than just looking at a calculated value. Likewise, when I look at the HDL markers, if I see an APOA1 particle, which is high, or I see large numbers of them, and I see the fractionation of those par particles into large numbers of on the HDL map, which is proprietary to Boston Heart, um, a large alpha-1 particle concentration, that's fantastic. Because then I know those large, able-bodied particles are, are really doing their job in taking care of cleaning out patients who have elevated LDL particles. So it allows me to relax a little bit with regards to that. These are the things that begin to come out with regards to tying together dyslipidemia back to type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance, which is the first issue that I'd be looking at before even considering type 2 diabetes in a patient. So, so those little clues working backwards from one category to the next are, are rather important. Likewise, the same can be said for looking at uh, the cardiovascular uh, inflammatory markers, which commonly the Q phase reactant proteins, such as high sensitivity, C-reactive protein, and fibrinogen, those are the two that usually go up most quickly and earliest. Some of those factors can be ameliorated, for example, high sensitivity C-reactive protein with simple vitamins, such as vitamin E in its complete form. Most people don't know that vitamin E has eight ingredients, but you have to get all eight ingredients for it to really be effective. And I've seen this over the years, being able to help patients. So these are some of the things that I begin to look at. Um, hopefully I answered How do you... your question. Oh yeah, exactly. And I was going to ask you how, because that's so much information and it's really dense when you dig into it. How do you make it simple to really describe what's going on? What's the narrative that you use with your patients? 
I think that's um, a great question, and I, I think as I'm jumping into this, um, the the narrative begins with what do you do three times a day, which affects your health more so than any other factor, and especially if you multiply that by your lifetime. So if you're talking about what do I do three times a day, well, it's called breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And what I typically see with patients that end up metabolically moving towards uh, type 2 diabetes, elevated glucose, uh, elevated blood pressure, elevated triglycerides, low HDL, typically those patients eat like kings for dinner and they eat like paupers or nothing for breakfast. So they have a, they've had a long day, they come home, they eat a lot. Maybe it's only two meals a day sometimes in those patients. They're already somewhat obese. They've got, if they were to be broken down on uh, the impedance scale, they're going to have body fat percentages which are higher than they should be, and they'll have lower muscle mass, and their metabolic age will be above their chronological age. So with that patient, if I can get them to understand that if they make breakfast their largest meal when their metabolic activity is highest between morning and afternoon, lunch a little bit smaller, and dinner smallest, where dinner looks like now realistically soup and salad or a serving of the protein of their choice plus two servings of vegetables, um, that's really great because, once again, if their last meal is smaller due to the fact that they had enough caloric intake earlier in the day with breakfast and lunch, then they're not going to necessarily be so hungry. Now, what are the factors that can influence this? We have to break down what the major categories of macronutrients do to our bodies. We know that carbohydrates basically, especially the high glycemic index carbohydrates, they give you energy for about two hours. They really make your insulin go high because your pancreas desperately has to grab all that glucose and pull it out of the bloodstream because glucose is highly inflammatory. And so that's a factor if they're eating a high-carb meal. If they're getting protein, let's say, for breakfast, well, they're getting now energy for about four hours, and they're getting some insulin uh, secretion depending upon how much protein they're getting. Typically, I can calculate... Um, a recommended daily allowance of protein for a patient, and if they stick around that number, they're going to maintain their muscle mass and not lose it, or maybe even gain a little muscle mass. But we don't want to go crazy on the protein either, because once again, it has other ramifications in the body. The last issue, which is really important, are fats. Um, fats give you energy for 8 to 12 hours, and do not, they do not stimulate your pancreas to put out insulin whatsoever. When you break down kilocalories per gram, we know that carbohydrates give us about four kilocalories per gram. Protein gives us about 3.5 to four kilocalories per gram. The fat gives you nine kilocalories per gram. So if we can live in the realm of getting some healthy fats and pro proteins, we can get energy for four to eight to 12 hours and feel good about not having our blood glucose levels Go high and down, go high and low, and just bounce up and down like a yo-yo all day long, and then that kind of puts you in a different mindset as that as that happens. So, ultimately, a, being able to uh, look at our diet a little bit differently and say, okay, if I'm going to have a large meal and I'm going to fall asleep within a couple hours, and tell my body, okay, my metabolism is now at its slowest, 
but I have all this food in my stomach. What is that food going to do? Your body is going to break it down and say, okay, I'm going to store this as fat. I'm not running during when I'm sleeping. But if it's in the morning where if I have a large meal, I've got the rest of the day to burn that off, then your body can handle that much more easily. So being able to have patients understand what they do three times a day and its effects and what the effects are of these macronutrients on their health really makes a difference. And it's a lifestyle change. And that's the fundamental, that's the fundamental issue is that many times patients haven't done this if ever in their life in their lifetime. And and I tell them, I said, you know what, just put this on your refrigerator, look at it every day. There's no judgment here. I just want you to feel good and feel healthy. And amazingly, uh, during the last two years, uh, the funny term that's come back to me is that the patients come back to me and say, I've dropped my COVID-19. I haven't gained my COVID-19. And <laughs> I think that's been fantastic because I think when they began to realize that they have other, have had other limitations due to everything that's been going on for the last two years, then, then they've really started focusing on their health in the best way. And that's been, been really making my job easier because they've now begun to gain control over their health. And the amazing part of doing that is that when they've begun to now control their glucose levels, which ultimately controls their insulin levels, which ultimately then I will see a drop in their total cholesterol, their LDL, triglycerides, especially and a rise in the HDL, pretty predictably. And I also see a drop in the inflammatory markers when they're doing that too. So that's the approach I take, and we follow it. So for example, if a patient comes in today, I can have them start this process, have them back in, recheck them with, a body, with my body composition analysis scale, and show them exactly where their muscle mass is, where it was, and likewise for the, for the uh, fat percentages, the total body water percentage, and their metabolic age, depending upon um, how aggressive they are with doing this. So they begin to see the feedback on their own, and typically what I'll hear is if a patient is now sleeping on a lighter meal for dinner, they're sleeping better during the night. They're not having difficulty with acid reflux. They're not having difficulty with, with digestion of their food. They're actually waking up feeling better, and as they start to implement um, a larger breakfast involving all three food groups in healthy portions, then, then uh, they begin to, to, to get it. Yeah, that's that's fascinating and that's wonderful. And I I was going to ask you about what your treatment strategies were, but you've done an excellent job with telling us about you know the lifestyle. Do you do any supplements in addition to that, or when do you so when do you start using supplements? supplements? Yeah. I think that's that's a great question. Um, just to give one other little bit of perspective on how we are inundated with carbohydrates and sugar in our diet. In 1905, the amount of sugar on average that an American would eat per year was five pounds. Um, today, do you have any idea where that number is? I don't. Per year on average. What is it? Give me, give me a number. I don't Just, know. I, I'm um, going to say 20. I don't know. 150. Oh, my goodness. 150 no pounds idea. of sugar per year. And if we really think about that concept of how we're inundated with, with uh, exposure to carbohydrates in our diet, what has to metabolize that? 
we have our muscles, but our pancreas has to has to navigate through that. So is there if if we're talking about five pounds in nineteen oh five, we're now talking about around 150 pounds on average today. Is there any way that we could not say that metabolic syndrome is the disease of America? I think it is. And and it's metabolic syndrome because it starts with insulin resistance, pancreatic stress, an overwhelming load of glucose in our diet. And consequently, we see the we see the issues of hypertension results from that because the heart has to beat against greater resistance in the body. Uh, we may see decreased physical activity because of the increased weight. We see the lipid profile go south uh, in a way that, that is really not great. And then we just have Band-Aids to treat these things, uh, in, a, in essence, if we don't address the fundamental issue of what happens to, uh, to our bodies with this inundation of of high glycemic index carbohydrates that we're exposed to in our diet. So, so that's where it gets to be uh, a real, real challenge. But once again, if our diet got us in that position over the course of 10, 20, 30 years, then why do we not first address this through our diet to see what we can do to reverse that process? And it's a matter of understanding how glucagon works, understanding how insulin works, fat storage versus fat utilization, and understanding how our pancreas wants to help us if we give it a chance. But if we get too heavy on one side of things and just ask our pancreas to constantly be in a fat storage mode by putting out insulin, then we see the, the horrible consequences of that over the course of many years. So that's a yeah it's, yeah it's, it's, and and it's, it's is it enough for me to say okay your glucose level is elevated I want to knock it down or do I want to say stop eating what you're eating when you're eating it if we begin uh-huh. to have that dialogue that is something that they can control better and especially if they see how their body is being changed over the course of four weeks six weeks eight weeks at a time then they can begin to to see that and. It, from my end of it, there's no condemnation. It's just support uh, to try to help them to uh, appreciate that. So what I'm hearing is your education about their diet and what's happening inside their body and how their lifestyle needs to change. That's the secret to your patient compliance is what it sounds like. Are there other secrets that you can share? Exactly. They're seeing themselves differently. I think if you can get anybody to see themselves differently, it's not enough for me to say to you, okay, you need to lose 20 pounds. What does that mean? I mean, I could diarese 20 pounds off if I want to. Um, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't mean much. Or they come back and maybe they have. Maybe, or maybe they've, maybe they've done everything I've said, but I didn't put them on my scale. And their weight's exactly the same. And they come back in and say, you know what? My, my pants are fitting a little bit more loosely, but my weight is exactly the same as it was when I was here last week or not last week, but maybe four weeks ago, I should say. And what if they gained five pounds of muscle and lost five pounds of fat? Would that not be great? Isn't that not what we're after? Because now they're getting enough protein in their diet, not high protein, just enough protein, enough protein based upon uh, the factors that I measure. So, so that's where, where a, a more sophisticated answer can be given uh, to those patients to say, good job, keep going. You're on the right track here. Don't worry about the total weight number because you're going to torture yourself with that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and w- that gets people into negative thinking. I'd rather inspire people into seeing how they can control this process 
uh, very easily. And and as they do that, then they have opportunities. Now, is it difficult here in, in on the you know west coast of California in January to get someone to go out walking? Uh, sure it is, but where my sister is in Wisconsin, and she told me that the temperature was one yesterday, <laughs> it made it a little bit more difficult. So, so you exactly. know, things have to be understood that, relatively speaking, there are things you can do. Uh, but once again, if I can't control the environment around me, at least I can control my diet, and I can begin to do things that way. You asked about earlier um, nutritional factors, um, supplements, and things like that. Very simply, one of the tests I, I have gone after now for over 12 years is vitamin D and the effects of vitamin D deficiency. From September through uh, March, basically fall and winter, where we are located, we're above the 35th parallel, and you just cannot get enough sun and UVA and UVB to convert um, any sun exposure you get into making vitamin D3. So it's a factor. And vitamin D3 is just—it's a pro-hormone. It's not a vitamin because we can make it. And it has so many uh, ramifications with regards to glucose metabolism, muscle metabolism, uh, cholesterol metabolism, um, bone density, bone function, um, coupled with vitamin K, very important. K drives D to the bone. D in turn keeps calcium in the bone, which is what we want. So there's issues with uh, affecting osteoporosis and slowing down those processes. Um, vitamin D with regards to the immune system, um, we know that it triggers T helper cells, natural killer cells. It inhibits the cytokine storm, which is a major issue that we've seen with the spike protein over the last two years. Um, it triggers the ability to uh, make antibodies and sustain antibodies. So the immune system is uh, profoundly influenced by vitamin D. And uh, it just saddens me that, that uh, we don't hear as much about it. Nevertheless, I've been checking my patients uh, with uh, vitamin D levels since probably 2010, if not earlier. And it was amazing uh, where I live to find that at that time, 70% of my patients were too low in their vitamin D levels. So nutrition plays a role. Um, a lot of patients who had very low levels that were around 7 or 10 nanograms per milliliter, I mean, not nanograms, uh, nanograms per deciliter, um, they were feeling lousy. Once they got their D levels high enough, they began to feel better. They began to want to exercise more. And that had um, biochemical consequences in a great way with regards to lipid metabolism and, and overall metabolism. So D is one of the things that I that I go after uh, very aggressively. Other vitamins I have, include. Yes, question. I I have to ask you though, what is your preferred um, range on vitamin D? What is the optimal range that you so have found? So if, if if the range if the range that you see by lab markers are thirty to one hundred, I shoot for fifty, fifty and above. Okay. It okay. shouldn't, we shouldn't be teetering on the border of acceptable. We should be well beyond that because that gives us a physiological reserve that we may need should we be in a position where we can't get access to uh, sunshine or this time of year, you know, adequate sunshine, even if we're out there. So uh, uh, that, that's where I, I shoot for a number above 50, 
patients don't have to go above 100. I don't I don't think that's necessary. That's too much of any one thing can be bad for anybody. But but I think if they get to that range, um, it's important. What may scare patients is that they'll see um, 1,000 international units or 5,000 international units. Well, the conversion is for every 1,000 international units, that equals 20 micrograms. So uh, 5,000 international units is 100 micrograms. I mean, it's it's not it's not a crazy number, but it's something that we can now begin to quantify in a different way, and and that's important. Um, if you if you get good sun, you can get the equivalent of 100 to 120 uh, micrograms or 5,000 units. If you're getting good UVA and UVB for 15 minutes during the spring and summer, um, when you get the sun at the right at the right point in the sky. So there are apps that people go to that can tell them that type of information, and I've seen them every now and then, and they're rather interesting to make you aware of those kinds of factors. So that's yeah. one thing. I, I mentioned earlier vitamin E in its complete form, which has uh, four tocopherols and four tocotrienols. That's important with regards to um, knocking down high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is a cardiovascular risk marker uh, produced by the liver. Um, kind of interestingly, I've seen patients with uh, normal cardiovascular risk factors, which Boston Heart does a brilliant job of kind of categorizing categorizing all in one area. And um, and if those markers are all in the high risk range, I, those patients have had heart attacks within a week. Yet in that same patient that I'm thinking of. Um, their lipid profile was reasonable. It really was not anything that was outstanding. So those risk factor markers really are highly predictive for um, pending uh, cardiovascular disease with potentially an event. But if those markers are normalized or optimal, um, and we're dealing with the cholesterol issues of elevated LDL particles, um, it allows me then to attack the factors that can go into um, keeping the lipid metabolism uh, better and more ideal for prevention. So, so those, those are some interesting interactions that take place by looking at a lipid profile using Boston Heart Diagnostics and the cardiovascular inflammatory markers. The, the, yeah. the, the third man in that room in that discussion, though, always goes back to insulin resistance, pancreatic stress, uh, and so forth. Certainly, there are patients with genetic um, issues with regards to hypercholesterolemia that, um, you know, fall outside of that. But that's, that's a, a rare picture to see. It's not, it's not the common picture that, that I pick up. Sure. Well, I know we have reached our, our time for today, but, oh, my goodness, you've given us so many clinical pearls, and it's been just fascinating to hear what you're doing in your clinic, and you've given our clinicians an abundance of information to help their own patients. Will you come back again and join us for some more discussion? I would love that. I'd love to. Um, one last tidbit, if that's okay, that I like to throw in there sure. is whenever whenever I order a basic metabolic panel or a complete metabolic panel, I never do so without looking at insulin as well, because we can't really understand glucose, whether that number is 85, 90, 95, or 100, without really understanding what a fasting insulin level would be. And it's such an easy calculation to calculate the homeostatic metabolic assessment for insulin resistance. Basically, the, the, the standard is to have 
glucose no higher than 90, and insulin no higher than 9. So insulin should be fasting between 3 and 9. And if you multiply that out, 90 times 9 divided by, and this is their markers, 405, that would give you a ratio of 2.0. So it's very easy to calculate whether or not a patient is moving towards insulin resistance if their HOMA IR mark is above 2.0 or not. What will mitigate that is a C-peptide protein, which will confirm whether that insulin level was just from a large meal the night before, or if that number is as consistently high as what the suspicion is. So it's just such a simple calculation that really, if anybody ever orders the complete metabolic panel or fasting glucose and or a basic metabolic panel, get that insulin level measured as well, because that really will go a long ways to helping understand insulin resistance in a patient. I agree. Insulin's huge. Agree. Well, thank you so, so much for your time today. And I um, will be excited to have you come back and join us again for some other topics and maybe continue this one too. We still have other questions I'd love to ask you, but we're out of time for today. So thank you so well, much. You we look much. forward to you coming back. Thank you again. Yes. Bye for now. Bye-bye.